Hey everybody, my name's Davis Herman, and welcome to Left Wing Soccer, a podcast about the intersection of the world's game and the left. This is a pilot episode, so please let me know what you think of it. Today, I'm going to tell you a bit about the Hillsborough disaster, an event that forever changed soccer and the city of Liverpool. And full disclosure, I support Atlanta United, not Liverpool. Last but not least, if you want to read more about this history, I included my sources in the episode notes. Here we go. It was 2.30 in the afternoon on April 15, 1989, in Sheffield, England. A critical soccer match was about to kick off. Liverpool FC and Nottingham Forest would compete to reach the final of the FA Cup, one of the world's most historic tournaments. Supporters of both teams were eagerly making their way towards the Hillsborough Stadium. The two supporters groups were kept separate as they waited to pass through the turnstiles. Liverpool supporters were allocated a single entrance on the west side of the stadium at Leppings Lane. By 2.40, a tightly packed crowd of Liverpool supporters was forming outside the stadium gates. Men, women, and children were packed inside, shoulder to shoulder. More and more fans were arriving as the turnstiles struggled to keep up. Some supporters presented their tickets only to find that they were at the wrong turnstiles, but were unable to escape the crowd. By 2.50, the crowd at Leppings Lane had grown to over 5,000. They could hear the crowd inside the stadium roar as the two teams walked out onto the pitch. Their efforts to get through the turnstiles became a little bit more desperate. Seeing the dense throng inside, a policeman requested that the match be delayed so that supporters could pass through in a more controlled manner, but his request was declined. A large exit gate, which was normally used to funnel supporters out of the stadium, opened, relieving some pressure. Two more exit gates opened nearby. The crowd, desperate for space and air, rushed through. They entered a narrow tunnel which led to the stands. When they got to the end of the tunnel, they found that the stands were already packed to capacity. Behind them, supporters continued to push their way into the stadium, unaware of the problems up ahead. As the minutes passed, the situation became more and more dire. By now the match had started, and Liverpool's goalkeeper recalled supporters pleading to him for help. The intensity of the crush broke metal barriers in the stands. The crowd was spilling in all directions as supporters desperately tried to escape. Some climbed up into the stands above, others climbed out onto the pitch. The two teams were ushered into their dressing rooms and informed that the match would be delayed. Meanwhile, some Liverpool supporters in the stands were so tightly packed that they began to suffocate and die. By now, everyone in the stadium was beginning to understand the severity of the situation. Hundreds of injured fans were stumbling out onto the pitch. Police, stewards, and first responders were overwhelmed by the magnitude of the disaster. And the FA Cup semi-final has been suspended in the most serious fashion. We're still trying to get an official comment from either the Football Association or one of the uh, officials down at pitch level. 
and for the moment all we can do is report that it looks extremely serious and one wouldn't wish to uh, make comparisons with previous uh, incidents of this sort but uh, it's a certainly a sensitive time in terms of crowd control and we have a lot of people hurt here today after that incident after just six minutes of the FA Cup semi-final which started in bright sunshine but which is now being clouded. By now 16 minutes from kickoff, the St John's ambulance have arrived and the first ambulance has come onto the pitch. Now elsewhere in the ground everybody realises the severity of the problem. When the dust settled, the extent of the destruction was laid bare. 94 people, mostly men, died that day. Two more died in the hospital. 38 of the victims were children. Another 766 suffered injuries. Among the dead was 18-year-old James Gary Aspinall. James worked as a clerk in Liverpool and traveled to the game with a friend who also died. James had two brothers, David and Andrew, and two sisters, Carrie and Louise. Here's James' mother, Margaret, describing the moment she saw her son's body. This person just said to me, are you ready, Mrs. Aspinall? And I thought, ready for what? And they said, follow us. And they took us in to the back of this place. And it was another room. And I went into, God, I can picture it now. It was like a dark room with a light. And there was these curtains with a big glass screen. And this tap on my shoulder said, are you ready? I kept thinking, what, ready for what? Not realising. And my husband said, yes, she's ready. And they just opened the curtains. And there's my son. On a trolley. And I just, please let me go into my son. I need to go in and give him a cuddle. I need to cuddle my son and let him know his mum's here. He wouldn't let me. I said, please, please. I kept begging, please. Let me cuddle my son, please. I love him so much, let me cuddle him. I've got to let him know that his mum's here. I've come for him. Will you put his coat on so I can take him home? I remember saying that. How stupid. Put his coat on so I'll carry him. Let me carry him home to the people who love him. And this voice, I don't know who it was, said to me, Sorry, Mrs. Aspinall, he doesn't belong to you no more. He belongs to the coroner. And I think that's when I lost it. It wasn't long before the disaster found its way into the news. South Yorkshire police provided media with a version of events that laid the blame squarely on Liverpool supporters. Here's Paul Midup, a police spokesperson, speaking to the media. And I'm saying to you that if police officers had been in there, when this mob surged through, the police officers would have been trampled to death underneath it. You just can't handle them. And the vast majority of that lot had been drinking, the ones that were arriving late. And they will not be told where to go. They won't do anything you're trying to do. And what can you do? 
Media reports describe drunk, violent, thuggish Liverpool supporters who refuse to comply with police orders and who are unable to properly form a line. Kelvin McKenzie, a journalist at Rupert Murdoch's The Sun, wrote the following. Quote, Drunken Liverpool fans viciously attacked rescue workers as they tried to revive victims of the Hillsborough soccer disaster. Police officers, firemen, and ambulance crew were punched, kicked, and urinated upon by a hooligan element in the crowd. Some thugs rifled the pockets of some injured fans as they were stretchered out. End quote. Condolences flooded in from around the world. Vigils and requiem masses were held. The Queen, the Pope, and President George H.W. Bush all made statements. By the time the 10th anniversary of the disaster rolled around, three survivors had committed suicide. Hundreds more suffered severe post-traumatic stress. They struggled with alcoholism, drug abuse, and strained personal relationships. The effects of the disaster spread deep into the Liverpool community. Survivors of the disaster felt that they were unfairly blamed and accused the government of crafting a false narrative and the media of uncritically broadcasting it. Put into context, their skepticism was understandable. 1980s Liverpool was an industrial city with endemic poverty and a politically active working class organized around trade unions. Liverpool was a Labour Party stronghold, and between 1983 and 1987, their city council was dominated by a Trotskyist Labour subgroup called Militant, which was perceived by the national government to be a threat. Liverpool Football Club was at the center of many working people's social lives. When Margaret Thatcher became Prime Minister in 1979, one of her first acts was to raise police pay by 45%, solidifying them as an ally in her conservative government's prolonged efforts to simultaneously enact deep austerity cuts and neutralize the labor movement. In handwritten notes for an abandoned speech, Thatcher called the Labour Party the enemy within and accused them of being a part of an insurrection against democracy. Liverpool's bereaved were right to be suspicious of their government. They viewed the tragedy as being part of a larger political struggle, one which pitted them against their own government and against ruling elites. Here are survivors describing the tragedy and its significance. In the governments at the time and the city, there was a, there was a contempt, you know, from both sides, you know. Uh, this city had been blitzed in the 80s, there was hardly any work. Very clannished in many ways, the city over the years was stuck together through thick and thin, mostly thin. You know, when we've had a battle against central government, not giving nothing to the city over the years, and, and, and you know, everyone came together. You know, immediately, the focus shifts from where responsibility really lies on this occasion, onto those people who, well, let's talk, I mean, they were at Heysel, weren't they? They were fighting on the terraces. That led to the death of 39 people in there. You know what they're like. You know what football fans are like. And these are football fans with knobs on. These are Liverpool football fans. They're always fighting and misbehaving. You know, that whole operation grinds into action. Following the disaster, the bereaved families formed the Hillsborough Family Support Group in order to assist one another. More than that, they took it upon themselves to uncover the truth of the disaster and to bring about justice. James's mother, Margaret Aspinall, was elected chairwoman of their committee. 
The first official inquest into the disaster ended in 1991, returning a verdict of accidental death. The bereaved families were deeply disappointed. They viewed the disaster as a crime, and their loved ones as the victims. They'd hoped for a verdict of unlawful killing, or perhaps manslaughter charges to be brought against the officers who were present at the disaster. Significantly, this first inquest was limited to the events up to 3.15pm, and did not include the emergency response. Though they faced seemingly insurmountable odds, the Hillsborough Family Support Group continued their fight for justice. Their struggle began to pay off when, in 1991, Lord Justice Taylor carried out a separate inquiry and produced a report which concluded that the main reason for the disaster was the failure of police control. Further, he found that the behavior of the Liverpool supporters was only a secondary factor, and that most fans were not in fact drunk. Despite the damning conclusions of Taylor's inquiry, no charges were brought. The series of inquests, panels, court cases, and investigations, both public and private, that followed is complex. Suffice it to say, for decades, the bereaved families of the victims of the Hillsborough disaster bravely pushed forward in their quest for justice. Slowly but surely, the government's narrative unraveled. Today's public understanding of the disaster is radically different from that of 1989. For years, it was widely believed that the victims themselves were to blame for the disaster, that their thuggish, drunken behavior led to their own demise. Now we know better. We know that preparation by local officials was woefully lacking. Chief Superintendent David Duckenfield was assigned to command the match, despite the fact that he had little to no training or personal experience overseeing such events. The preparation, such as it was, was largely focused on combating the perceived threat of hooliganism, not on crowd control. We know that poor decisions were made by police leading up to the match. Duckenfield claimed that rowdy Liverpool fans forced open the gates beside the turnstiles in an effort to gain entry to the stadium. He would later admit that it was his own decision to have the gates open, a decision which ultimately contributed to the fatal crush. We know that supporters helped one another. In footage since released, fans can be seen tearing down advertising boards and using them as makeshift stretchers to assist in the response. Others can be seen reaching down from the stands above, pulling children out of the fray. We know that even as victims lay dying, the police wasted no time in framing Liverpool supporters as the guilty party. South Yorkshire police performed blood alcohol tests on the victims, some of them children. They ran background checks in an order to cast them as violent thugs. We know that police tampered with evidence. 116 witness statements were altered. South Yorkshire police systematically removed or changed negative comments about their own department. We know that the media uncritically absorbed and amplified the narrative peddled by police and by government officials. We know that the first responders were unprepared to effectively manage the disaster. Unconscious victims were wrongly placed on their backs rather than in the recovery position. An effective response could have saved 41 of the 96 victims. In June 2017, six people, including two former senior police officers, were charged with criminal offenses over the Hillsborough disaster and the cover-up that followed. Chief Superintendent David Duckenfield was charged with a manslaughter of 95 people. After 28 years of fighting, the Hillsborough Family Support Group, along with the Liverpool community and countless others, achieved something approaching justice. 
Here's a recording of the members of the Hillsborough Family Support Group reacting to the charges. We've known this for 27 years and the authorities have just cheated and lied the way through it all the time. Uh, now we're all just overjoyed because we thought we were going to get shafted again. I was at the back of that call that day. We had, you know, we, got, we had friends that were killed there. We've got justice now, we've got the truth, what we always knew. But at the end of the day, someone needs to be punished. There's 96 people dead now. So what explains their success? How did they dismantle a narrative, a lie, that was endorsed by the government and by the media? My understanding of this decades-long struggle is limited, but here are some factors that stand out to me. First, Liverpool Football Club supported the bereaved and the rest of their devoted fans throughout, and kept the memories of the Hillsborough victims alive with vigils, tributes, and anniversaries, and by incorporating the tragedy into their club's culture. Here's Steven Gerrard, one of the most accomplished players in the club's history, speaking about Hillsborough in 2009. It's very central. It was, it's very important, as you say, and it'll never ever be forgotten. You know, them 96 people that lost their lives will never ever be forgotten. You know, the people that got hurt. Um, but, I, you know, it's, it's important that them people get remembered individually, not just as a number, as 96. And, um, you know, this club has, has fought for justice ever since and will continue to do so. Yeah, we've stuck together ever since that day, like we always do when times are, are hard at this football club and that shows what kind of club we are. Second, from the beginning, Liverpool's local media broke from London-based outlets and approached their coverage of the disaster with a healthy dose of scepticism, asking questions about policing, stadium design, and the validity of subsequent inquests and investigations. On April 19th, four days after the disaster, the front page of the Liverpool Echo read, quote, Speaking up for Merseyside, we challenge the London papers and the Sheffield police. Produce your evidence. End quote. Two days later, the Echo published photos of the stands demonstrating the role that poor crowd control played in the tragedy. Third, the bereaved and the Liverpool community more generally were highly organized. Labor unions, support groups, action groups, and other structures made it possible to plan and carry out effective actions. For example, after the Hillsborough disaster, the entire city of Liverpool boycotted the Sun, a boycott which continues today. It's estimated that their boycott has cost the Sun 15 million pounds a month for the past 28 years. We haven't got the, the, the back of the big newspapers to come back and, and it's hit them back like that, you know. The only thing we could hit them by is not, is, is not buying the sun, and that's what we've done. The strength of feeling doesn't diminish, and we don't believe the, the sun will ever get a foothold on Merseyside ever again. It's made lots of attempts, uh, as you well know. Um, it won't succeed, ever. And finally, the local government seems to have consistently backed the Hillsborough Family Support Group and others seeking truth and justice. The Labour City Council, for example, funded the Hillsborough Project, led by criminologist Phil Scratton. Their goal was to externally scrutinize the investigations and inquiries following the disaster. The damning findings of this initiative played an influential role in uncovering the truth. In 2009, capitalizing on an influential article by The Guardian's David Kahn, detailing the bereaved Hillsborough family's continuing campaign for justice, Labor Ministers Andy Burnham and Maria Eagle requested that all the official documents relating to the disaster be released, a request that was eventually granted. Here's Margaret Aspinall describing their fight. 
don't ever give up. Don't ever give up hope. Keep knocking on people's doors. You tire them out. Don't let them tire you out. Don't let them divide and rule you. We're Liverpool people. We all stay together. We fight for each other. And our city's stuck with us. From day one, they believed in us. When we had other people, didn't. And what I admire about the people of Merseyside is they are united when it comes to any form of injustice.